Yes, God, we thank you. Thank you for shaping us. Thank you for making us in your image, as we'll talk about next week. Thank you for the fact that you did not create us and set us on our own. You did not leave us and forsake us when you created us. No, you've been an intimate provider. You are close to humanity. We're grateful for that, God. Especially when we see your greatness. When you see your wonder in the acts of creation. You are so powerful, so far beyond anything we could comprehend. And yet somehow, you still care for us. Small, tiny beings in the vast cosmic order of things. And yet you set us at the pinnacle of your creation. We're grateful for your care for us, for your watching out for us. We're grateful for how many things you protected us from that we don't even know about. We look at this world and we see all the pain and suffering and evil. How much more there would be if not for your hand. Of your hand of provision, your hand of care, your hand of guidance. Thank you for protecting us in the ways that we don't even know how. Lord, give us your word tonight. We might be changed as we think about this book. We think about what Genesis has to say to us. About who you are. And about your connection with us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to Wellspring Year 2. As you can see, we've upgraded in Year 2. Got a PowerPoint and everything. Ooh. A little image. There it is. I found that image, stock photo today. I was very pleased with it. It definitely works a lot. It, it looks a lot nicer than just the color gradient that I had. That's a background. Just a nice fade of color. Um, uh, you know, I, this is something I wanted to do, I thought about last week, and I never got the chance to do it. And uh, I was going to do it, and I didn't, uh, because I forgot. So I'm going to remember to do it now, this week, and it's really important to me, because last week, you know, we uh, celebrated this year anniversary. And I got to say something about everyone, and uh, I know she's going to be embarrassed, but uh, I wanted to say... You know, I went around the room and I said uh, something worth I was thankful for, for every person. And someone who was not here with us was Hannah. And we all missed her. Spotlight. And um, I just wanted to say, Hannah, that we're so grateful that you're a part of this community. And I'm so thankful for the way that you have uh, really more than, than anyone, you know, this, we had kind of a core leadership team that started. You have been faithful to be here. And you have always been a presence here. You've always been consistent. And we are so grateful for that. And I am so grateful because my kids adore you. And the way that you have gone downstairs and, and given Monique a chance to come up and be a part of this and led the kids and, and taught them, I'm just so grateful for that. And I just I, I would not be doing my due diligence if I didn't thank Hannah, who has been so faithful from the very beginning of this church. And so thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So tonight, we're going to start uh, on Genesis, and I'm actually not going to get into the content of the book yet. This is going to be an introduction night, and so tonight, we're going to talk about the book and what makes it up, and then next week, we'll start in with the story of creation. Next week, will be Genesis 1, 
1, 1 to 2, 3 is really the first creation account. And so we'll go through that next week. But before we do that, I want you to understand the book. And so we have to look at it. I titled this series, A Land, A Seed, A Blessing. And that's going to come into play as we go through the book of Genesis, what it has to say about what God is doing. So we'll come back to that in, in a little bit. But that's the title for the series. For this series, it's Genesis, A Land, A Seed, A Blessing. Here we go, Genesis. So the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, uh, it's the beginning, right? In the Hebrew, the word that starts it, the, the name of the book is actually Bereshit. It's the first Hebrew word. They name these first five books of the Torah after the first word that shows up in the scroll. And Bereshit means in the beginning. In the beginning. So that's the Hebrew name of the book. You don't need to write that down. It's not a blank or anything. But it's interesting to know. So the Hebrew name of the book, Bereshit, is in the beginning. It's those first words that show up in one. And Genesis comes through the Greek, of course. It's, it's the origin. The origin, right? What, what are the origins of things? And so Genesis, right? And we use the word that way still, right? In our language, you can talk about the genesis of something. What is its beginning? What starts... What, where did it come from, right? So what's important about Genesis? Well, Genesis is the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. If you know the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Tanakh is the name for it. And that stands for something that actually stands for their, um, their terminology for their three sections of their Bible, which actually, if you've read the Bible, you know those sections. You may not realize you know them, but you do. They're typically called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And that is a translation of these three letters. T stands for Torah. It's the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew letter standing for T. That's Torah. The N standing for Nevaim, which is uh, prophets. That's their word for prophets, Nevaim. And then Ketuvim, which means the writings. And so they take those three letters and put vowels in between them. And that's how they came up with their name, Tanakh. It's called the Tanakh. The Torah, the, the, the prophets, and and the writings. So that's called the Tanakh. So it begins the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you may not know this. The Hebrew Bible is not in the exact same order as the English Bible. There are differences in how they're ordered. But for the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis is what starts it. And of course, for our own Bibles, it is also the start. Okay? And it also is the start of the Torah. The Torah. The first part of the Bible, the first part of the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Torah. Torah is a Hebrew word that means instruction or teaching, right? Sometimes we think of it as law, and it does mean that, but it's actually a broader word than that. It's used to mean something that is taught. It's an instruction. It's a teaching. And so when we, <clears throat> we look at these three different aspects, and the reason I highlight each of them is because they each have something different to say. And the reason is, it's foundational at every level. Genesis is foundational to the Old Testament. If you want to understand what's going to happen in the Old Testament, you have to understand Genesis. It's also foundational to the New Testament. If you want to know what's going on with Jesus, if you want to understand the New Testament, you've got to get what's happening in Genesis. Genesis informs what happens in the New Testament? How can you understand what Jesus does without Genesis 3? You can't. You can't. It's necessary. Without the fall of man, Jesus doesn't make sense. 
What's the purpose of his coming? Why did he? Why, why do we even need Jesus? Without Genesis 3, you can't understand it. You can't understand it. And of course, where did we come from? Without Genesis 1, what, what's the, how did we even get here? Why do we exist? Genesis 1 and 2. 2 tells a secondary version of the creation story. And it's foundational to what I told you was the Torah, which is the first five books of our Bible. Okay, So if you know your books of the Bible, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books are really one work. They're all a compiled work. We think of them as five separate books. The reason they're separated into five books is because each book is about a scroll's length of material. So they had to write them on separate scrolls. So they ended up being five scrolls. But really, really what it is is one work. And, and the way we connect them is that they're the books authored by Moses, is how we tend to think of them. And it's certainly how the Jewish people think of them. So <clears throat> these first five books, it's, it's often referred to as the five books of Moses. I wrote down words that are used to refer to it. The five books of Moses. The Pentateuch is Greek. Pentateuch just means five. You know, you've heard penta before. That's just the Greek word for five. Tuk is, tukos is the word for scrolls. It's the five scrolls. Pentateuch, the five scrolls. Or Torah, the law. And all those words refer to this section of scripture. But Genesis is where it starts. Genesis is where it starts. The themes and interests of Genesis are going to show up and be fleshed out throughout the rest of the entire Bible. We have to pay attention as we study Genesis because everything that is, is planted in seed form in Genesis is, is explained over the whole rest of the Bible. These things are just like the smallest germination at the very beginning, and they start to take shape as you read the rest of the Bible, but these never go away. They are the themes and interests of the entire Bible. What, what starts here in Genesis. Okay? And this is really important, and I think it's, a, a, it's an unfortunate, um, I think, misunderstanding, but you, you hear it a lot. It's kind of a, a catchy slogan. It sounds nice, which is that, you know, it's not our story, it's his story. Maybe you've heard that before. It's a nice slogan, but it's actually not true. Here's why. The Bible is not simply God's story, and it's not simply man's story. You can get off on either side of that. You can think this is just all about God, and it's only about God. It has nothing to do with us. And you can be so man-centered and say it's just about us, and God's just kind of this actor who's about us. It's actually the story of God's relationship with man. And how do we know that? Well, here's the reason. God's story actually doesn't start at the beginning of the Bible, does it? God's story stretches off into eternity past. The Bible doesn't begin at the beginning of God. Actually, no, God has been in community with himself. The Trinity has been in community with itself forever. And so when the Bible begins, where does it start? It starts at the material creation. It starts at the creation of things, of material, physical reality. Why is that? Well, because this story is not just God's story. It's not just our story, but it's the story of his relationship with us. That is the content of the Bible. Even, I mean, how quickly do men show up on the scene? Does mankind, humanity, show up on the scene? 
It's at the beginning, or it's, it's at the end of chapter 1. Excuse me. It's at the end of chapter 1. But the whole point of chapter 1 is for God to set up the habitat, the, the surroundings, the universe, so that he can create man. And from that moment on, from Genesis 1 on, those few verses, those 26 or so verses we have where man's not on the scene yet, from that moment on, the rest of it is about mankind and what God does in relationship with them and how he treats them, how they react to him, how they rebel against him, all the different ways that God relates to the people. So the Bible is the story of God's relationship with man, and it's neither our story simply nor his story simply, though he is certainly the main character. He is the hero. He is the protagonist of the story, no doubt. But it's a story of him relating to his creation, and we can't miss that. I think we do a disservice to the Bible if we miss that. Right? I'll give you the main theme of the Bible. I wish I could give you a whole sermon on this. I, at some point, I probably will. But I'll tell you what I think the main theme of the Bible is. Most people say redemption is the main story. Most people say you know, Jesus is the point of the Bible. And that's true to an extent. But I actually think this theme that I'm about to tell you sets Jesus in a context that makes sense of him. It makes sense of why Jesus came. It makes sense of what the goal was of him coming. And that is encapsulated, really, it's a verse, but it's talked about in many different places in the scriptures. It's this verse. The main theme of the entire Bible is, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. That's the story of the Bible. It is about a God who wants to be a people's God. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. And ultimately, Jesus makes sense in light of this. If, if you can't make sense of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think you're missing the main theme. You have to be able to make sense of both of them with the main theme of the Bible. And this is the main theme of the Bible. Everything God is doing in the Old Testament is, is making himself the God of a people, which he has by right, right? It's his by right, but that doesn't mean people submit to it. It's about making a people that will be his, which in the Old Testament is who? The people of Israel. In the New Testament, it's those who believe in Jesus. It's the church. And lastly, dwelling with them, right? When we read Genesis, when he opened Genesis, what is he doing? He's in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's walking in the garden with them, face to face. Many people miss out on this because they read the Old Testament and they're like, man, look at all these laws and rules and what's the point? Like Leviticus. Who, who likes to read Leviticus? What's the point of Leviticus? Leviticus is talking about how a people can live in the presence of a holy God. Why? Because God wants to dwell with them. And he's got to set up the rules and laws in which people can safely dwell with him. So Leviticus, as a book, is setting up these parameters in which his people, he can be in their midst. And then what makes sense of Jesus? What was the point of Jesus coming? Yeah, he had to die and pay for our sins, but ultimately the point Jesus did, what he accomplished, one, was he was God himself dwelling among us. 
But because he was one man, he could not give himself to everyone. The goal was that he would pour out the Spirit so that God could dwell among his people. It doesn't just end at Jesus and it was like, well, God went away. Too bad. No. It makes sense of the continuing of the story. He left the Spirit so that God himself, the Spirit of God, could dwell among his people. And then, of course, why is Jesus coming back? So that the whole Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit might all dwell in perfect unity in new Jerusalem, right? New creation in which the evil are cast out of his presence and he is left with a people. A people in in which he can dwell with, right? It says in in the end of Revelation, what's, what's the glory of Revelation? The glory is that in new Jerusalem, there is no temple. There is no lights because the Father and the Son themselves are the temple. They themselves are present in the city. This is the theme of the Bible because it makes sense of every move God makes. Every move God makes is to be the God of the people, to make a people for himself, and make a way to dwell among them. Okay? I kind of gave you a sermon on it anyway, sorry. But, but that's, to me, that is the main thing. It, it sets every piece of what, God's in do, what God does in order. Right? This is what he intended at the beginning, and he had it set up until Genesis 3. When we rebelled against it, we, we said we, we had our own way. Okay, that's the main theme. But Genesis specifically, Genesis specifically wants to focus on what the Lord wants to provide for humanity. Because it is a story of beginnings, It is a story focused on what God wants to give people. And that is why I titled this series, A Land, a Seed, a Blessing. Those are the three things the Lord promises to give people. We don't often think about how important the land is, but if you read the Old Testament, it is absolutely vital to the definition of who Israel is. Their land. The land God promised them. The land God promised their, their ancestors. They say that over and over and over. Because our space, a sacred space that is yours, is, is precious and vital. A seed, what's a seed? Well, seed is the word that is used for offspring in Genesis. He wants to provide children. He wants to provide a continuation of the human line. And of course, who's the ultimate seed that we see in the New Testament? All of that language of seed language is applied to Jesus. He was the seed that was to come, the offspring they waited for. And then lastly, a blessing. A blessing. He wants to bless people. He wants to bless people. And the premier blessing, Galatians 4 tells us that the blessing of Abraham was actually the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God and being poured out on all people, that that was the blessing of God, that the people of God would have the Spirit with them. And so we'll talk about those three things. And they're going to come up over and over and over again. They're going to come out throughout the entire book. These three things, a land, a seed, and a blessing, are going to come up over and over. And they frame the stories that we read, all the accounts we read in Genesis. Okay? So makeup of the book. What is the book made up of? It's, it's basically two sections, and it's typically split, split like this by most scholars. 
Genesis 1 to 11 is one section, and Genesis 12 to 50 is the other. So these are not even sections. This is not half and half. They are asymmetric sections. But Genesis 1 to 11 tells a specific story. And that story is prehistory. It's prehistory. It's all the things that happened in the ancient days, right? Before these, rec- before these recordings could happen. It's the story of what happened at the beginning. In the beginning, that's how the book starts. It's the story of what happened with Noah and the flood. It's the story of what happened when the nations were spread across the face of the earth after the Tower of Babel. It's prehistory. And then the second is, is this. It's the patriarchs from 12 on. Okay? Genesis 12 starts our story with Abraham. Once you hit Genesis 12, it starts talking about Abraham, and from then on, you're focused on four characters. There's other side stories, there's other pieces that come up, but the four characters that the, the narratives focus on are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And that takes us all the way to the end of the book, those four. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph take us all the way to the end of Genesis. So that's the makeup of the book as we're going to start studying it, is these two sections. And of course, we're going to just follow the book. So we'll start in this prehistory section as we go through it. But know that this is the general makeup. But one thing that's really important to the interpretation, and I want to share with you, to the interpretation of Genesis, is Genesis's relationship to the rest of the Torah, the other four books, to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What is the definitive work of God in the Old Testament? Do you know? What is the defining work God does in the Old Testament? Talk about this. It's for people. The defining, that mighty act that he does. What is the defining act of God in the Old Testament? It is definitional. Creation? It's actually not, which is interesting. But it is tied to creation in terms of the language they use. But that's very good, Shirley. And that's, you want us that, to keep guessing? Yes, yes, sure. Still good. The law? No, actually, it's not the, the giving of the law. Though it, though mm. the giving of the law is based upon it. Is mine as good as Shirley's? Ten Commandments. History. No. Jeez, this is hard. No, think of Tell think of the act he delivering does. Israel from Egypt. It's the Exodus. The defining mm. work of God in the Old Testament is mm. the Exodus. Okay. It is the national identity of the people of Israel. It is the defining event for them. And one thing we have to think about as we study Genesis is that Genesis is a book that is defined in relationship to the Exodus. It's defined in relationship to it. How? Well, what about those two sections I just told you? Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 to 50. What are those sections? They're what happened before the Exodus. If you look at the amount of time spent on each thing, and here's the interesting thing. Modern scholars and, and modern, really, Christians, the thing we really like to think about, we like to think about Genesis 1 to 11. We're like, what's the science there? What's, how did that work? How can we, what can we understand from them? What does it mean? What are the Nephilim? What are, how did the flood work? Is it global? Is it just lo- local? We have all these science questions. But if you actually look, like I told you, the Torah is one work. Look at what the author was concerned with 
even just based on the amount of time he spent on each. He spends 11 chapters on prehistory. He spends the rest of the book of Genesis, 40 odd, you know, 48 chapters or so, on the patriarchs, and then writes four books on the nation of Israel. One book on their defining event, the second on their laws, the third on their wilderness wanderings as a nation, and then the last one, the repetition of the law. Deuteronomy is the second repeating of the law. He spends four books on the nation of Israel. Where is this author's interest? It's on Israel. It's on Israel. So when we look at Genesis, we have to remember that Genesis is defined in relationship to the Exodus. And what does that lead us to think about? The primary focus of the Torah, like I wrote here, it's on the nation of Israel. It's on the God whom Israel serves. And it's on the law which governs it. Those three things. What that tells us, though, is that Genesis is written most likely after the events of the Exodus have already taken place. It is a, it is a reflection on these things. Now, that doesn't mean these stories weren't around before it, right? One thing we know from ancient cultures is that they were oral cultures, right? They weren't, they weren't written cultures. A lot of times they didn't even have a, a viable writing system. But they told stories. And so I'm not saying that these stories weren't in circulation prior to the Exodus. I'm sure these stories about Adam and Abraham and all these things were probably passed down for generations before they were written down. But the point is the shaping of the book that we have, the shaping and the writing of the book that we actually have it as we have it now, was probably after the Exodus. And we see time and time again as you read Genesis that things that make sense only after the Exodus happen or are spoken of. A good example is often in Genesis, the Lord is spoken of as Yahweh. When is the name Yahweh given? Who, who's the first person to receive that name in the scriptures? The name Yahweh from God. It's Moses. It's Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, how, if these people, if I tell them I came from their God, how are they going to know who you are? In Exodus 3, how, how will they know who you are? And God says, tell them I am who I am, which is Yahweh. That's the name, Yahweh. It's a translation of that name. Tell them I am Yahweh. Why? Because that's their God. That's the God of Israel, Yahweh. But until then, that's the first time you hear God give that covenant name, that personal name. That means most likely people prior to the Exodus only knew him as Elohim, God, generally. Just that name, God. They didn't have his covenant name in the same way that Moses received it for the nation. And yet, throughout Genesis, what do they call They often call him Yahweh. Why? Because they know that they're talking about the same God. The God of the Exodus is the God of Abraham, is the God of Adam. And so they use that term without even thinking about it, because they know who he is. Even if others before did not know that name, they use it, because they're writing these things down as a reflection on the Exodus. It's already taken place. And secondly, uh, the, in a related point, and I'll just rip this Band-Aid off real quick if you don't know this yet. <laughs> There's definitely later editing going on in the, in the Pentateuch, in the Torah. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a rough one for some people. There's definitely later editing. And I actually think, in my opinion, I think that actually shows even more the glory of God. But there are things that could not have been written in Moses' day in the, Bible, in, in the Torah. So I'm not saying that that doesn't mean Moses authored it. I think he did. But it means as, as these works were copied, as these works were you know, transcribed over and over and over again, people were adding things to make sense of it, to help explain it so that people could understand it. And there's a lot of examples that are really clear that they could not have made sense until after uh, the period of Moses. Uh, I mean, the most basic example, and it's a great one, is uh, Moses clearly doesn't record his own death, right? He, he couldn't write about him dying, going up on Mount Nebo and dying, and that the Lord buried him. Moses didn't, like, come back real quick, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> right? So there's stuff like that. I mean, that's the most obvious. And that's the end of Deuteronomy. Someone had to have added that because they, they knew what happened to Moses. But there's actually many other pieces in which we see that kind of later editing that could not make sense unless other things had transpired. There are certain things that could not have happened until they entered the land and knew what the land was like until Joshua. There are certain tribal markings that would not have happened until the age of the judges. So we know that this is a work in progress. But in, in my opinion, that makes the story of Scripture even greater. Because God wasn't just at work that he just dropped them document and it was perfect and then preserved perfectly. No. God was at work even in the transcribing. God was at work in the preserving. God was at work as it passed from generation to generation. And that's how it became the text that we have now. And that's precious. God's always been at work preserving his word. Making it valid. Making it work. And I think that's a hopeful thing for us. But I know it, it, it strikes some people uh, wrong, because it's, it's not something they've ever thought of before. So, <clears throat> all that to say, as we study this book, we're going to not just be looking at the text of Genesis, what it says, but we're going to be thinking about how the people would have understood it after the Exodus, how they would have understood these realities about the God who had already redeemed them. This God who redeemed them, who brought them out of Egypt, how would they interpret who this God was in the book of Genesis? Because they already know him as their deliverer, as their redeemer. Okay, and that plays into our interpretation. So those are the things I just wanted you to be prepared about beforehand, uh, before we go through this book. Um, it's a great book. It's a great book. I love it. And it's never afraid to deal with the darkness of humanity, it has some unbelievably dark things in it. And at the same time, the grace of God, the protection of God, is always at work, even in the darkest moments. Even in the darkest things that happen, God is preserving, God is protecting, God is promising, and he's keeping his promises. And that's a beautiful thing. And, and what could be more emblematic of that than this story right here, Genesis 22? Genesis 22, and that's why I chose this picture as the background, because it's the highlight, the highlight of Genesis. Abraham, it's actually known, most of us say the sacrifice of Isaac, it's actually known as the binding in Hebrew culture. It's called the Akedah, it means the binding, because he wasn't sacrificed, was he? Mm -hmm. It's called the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, and it's a beautiful story, and it's the definitive story 
of what Jesus was going to come and do, isn't it? The definitive story in the Old Testament of the Father and the Son and their relationship and their love and what they're going to accomplish in the New Testament is shown in Genesis 22. At the very beginning of everything, God gives a picture of what he's going to do with his own son. Beautiful story. Can't wait to get there. Right, so that's all I have for you tonight. Here's your introduction to Genesis. I'm glad we're able to get some of this basis sorted out before we start on the book. Next week, we'll start on creation. And I hope we're going to have some good conversations, because I know, and like I already said, that prehistory part, that Genesis 1 to 11, that's where everyone's questions are. That's where everyone wants to talk about. Like, oh my goodness, what, what does it mean here? And what's going on here? And is that scientific? Or is that, you know, all those questions. And I'm looking forward to engaging in all of them with you guys. So uh, it's going to be a great time. I'm, I'm excited. This series will take us to uh, basically the end of the year. And um, it's going to be great. So the next 10 months on this book, 50 chapters. That's as long as I spend on John, actually, for half the content in John. Um, but it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it.